0: Good morning, everybody. Uh, this is the first time I'm going for my iPad, so. So a couple weeks ago, um, we went down to, uh, by Devon, there's a, I think it's Voyager Park, and we were swimming in the water, and it's very rocky there, It'll just to cool off underneath the, the main bridge that goes across the river there. And at one point, we were, we were walking along the edge, and there was this one kind of little inset where the, the, the bank had kind of caved in, and there was, a, uh, there was a bit of water in the bottom, but there was like trees and roots and all kinds of holes in the dirt. And I think, I, don't, I actually don't remember who saw it, but one of, the, someone, one of the kids said, oh look, there's a snake. And there was a, there was a small garter snake just kind of worming in around the water and climbing up the trees, up the, up the bank. And we were going to catch it, and like, when I was little, I grew up on the farm, I, I, had a, I had a garter snake. I caught one as a kid, and I had a little aquarium. And I, I had this thing as a pet, and I'd like, pick it up and stuff. But there was, like, I wanted to catch this one at the river. But even then, even having dealt with them before, and knowing that the garter snakes aren't poisonous or anything like that, there was this apprehension in me. Like, I'm like, I don't want it to bite me. You know. <laughs> even though it's not poisonous, just the, the sting of it, would, it was, enough to kind of put me off and like go slow enough that it would get away and then it wasn't my fault that I didn't catch it. (laughs) So all that to say, um, when you think about serpents, what kind of images come to mind? Slithery? Anything else? Satan? Okay. Okay. Fangs, yeah. Okay, so there's kind of two ways that you can go about this. Like when you think about snakes, from from culture, you there's kind of two ways to go. You can think about snakes in a bad way, like these images of like Medusa from Greek mythology with her serpent hair and snake body. Um, From from the movies, there's like Conan O'Brien, Conan Conan the Barbarian, (laughs) where he fights this giant serpent. more recently, Harry Potter, with the, uh, in his, the second movie there is, the, or the book, there's this basilisk, this giant snake, um, or there's Voldemort's evil pet Nagini, um, or maybe maybe you suffer from ophidiophobia, or the fear of snakes, like uh, like Indiana Jones, ah oh, snakes, he always says, um, or there's there's a movie which I've never seen. Called snakes on a plane, and I can imagine it's just as <laughs> terrible as it sounds. <laughs> but also, I think there's there's a few good examples of snakes, um, like in 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 symbolism. There's there's the rod with with the snakes wrapping around it, which are, is for like EMS or for medical associations, like the American Medical Association or the Canadian Medical Association. They have this rod. They call it the the Rod of Asclepius who was this Greek deity of of healing and medicine. And I I think those are really the only kind of two good symbols of of snakes that we have. Now, from the Bible, when we look at serpents or snakes, there's 54 occurrences of the word serpents in the Bible. And consistently, it's signs of bad things. You have in Genesis at the very beginning, in chapter 3, you have the serpent show up. The first mention of it, where it says that he's more crafty than any other beast, and he's a deceiver, and he's, lying, he's a liar, and he tempts our first parents, Adam and Eve, to sin, which led to the fall. And we have God cursing the serpent as a result of that. It says, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have said this, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life." And from that, following that immediately, we have the prolegomena, the the first mention of of the gospel. It says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Again, we go on in Exodus, we see Moses and Aaron before Pharaoh, and the serpents come, and and it's a sign of power and of judgment. In chapter 7, verse 8, it reads like this, Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. And then as you go through the Old Testament, scattered throughout Deuteronomy, Psalms, and Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes, and Isaiah, and Jeremiah, and Micah, and Amos, whenever serpents are mentioned, it's almost always a sign of a pronounced curse, or judgment, or a a symbol of warning. And then, of course, in Revelation... You have, uh, in chapter 12, the unmasking of the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, who's the one who pursued the woman and desired to devour her child and makes war against her offspring. And in chapter 20 of Revelation, it's the serpent who was thrown into the bottomless pit for a thousand years. And at the end of that millennia, he's ultimately defeated by the mere presence of the great warrior king. So book-ending, the pages of Scripture, from the Garden of Eden in Genesis to the Lake of Fire in Revelation, the devil is pictured as a serpent. Now, one passage in particular that I didn't mention is is John 3, uh, verses 13 to 14. Well, here it's Jesus speaking, and the serpent is placed in kind of foreign company with this. Jesus says this, he's talking to Nicodemus. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That is kind of shocking. It's, Jesus himself is putting the serpent into his company. He's associating himself with the serpent. Now, I think that this passage is often overlooked because of that association. Because we don't, we don't want to think about Jesus in bad lights. We, don't, we always think about Jesus, the good, the righteous, the holy, but we never we wouldn't even think to associate him with the serpent. So to find out what in the world Jesus is talking about, we of course have to turn to numbers 21 which he's referencing. So in numbers 21 verses 4 to 9, it says from mount hor they set out by the way of the red sea to the red sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient on the way, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that the people of Israel died. And the Lord came to Moses and said, and the people came to Moses and said, "We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us." So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Now often, because we have the whole picture, when we read stuff like this, we think, oh, that's Jesus, or that's a, that's a, that's a type pointing forward to Jesus. But for the people in the Old Testament, there's no there's no way that they could have thought that that's, the, that's pointing forward to a type of, of Christ or to the Messiah. Everything up to that point, serpents have always been a bad sign. Now at this point in Israel's history, they had been on their wilderness wanderings for about 40 years after the Exodus. And even though God had been exceedingly faithful to his people, multiple occurrences of grumblings and complaining against Moses and against the Lord had happened, And as a result, there are multiple occurrences of God's judgments and punishments, like military defeats, plagues, and death. Now, we've already seen from previous mentions of serpents, and indeed the various mentions of serpents throughout the Bible, that they don't have a very positive image from a biblical perspective. So what is it about a bronze serpent being lifted up that brings healing for God's people who would gaze upon it. Now, when we look at that passage, what, what did the serpents do to the people? Well, it says that they, they bit the people so that many of the people of Israel died. So the serpents were the very thing that was hurting and killing those who had sinned against the Lord. Now, with that in mind, I want to... Step aside and do a bit of theology for a moment. Now, after the church was birthed in, as described in Acts, it grew numerically, geographically, and as a result matured doctrinally in the first few centuries since its since its inception. Distinctions of the nature of the of the triune Godhead—Father, Son, and Spirit—developed uh, and solidified. Um, distinctions of the nature of Christ's incarnation. Of the Holy Spirit and numerous other areas of Christian orthodoxy developed as Jesus led his bride. Now, one of these areas that developed was was atonement theories. Now, atonement theories are theories that try to try to answer the question of why did Jesus have to die? What did his dying on the cross do? What did he accomplish? And how those answers and the answers to those questions how they benefit humanity. Now, some of those atonement theories that, have, that were developed, some of them were good, some of them were incomplete, and some of them were, were bad. Now, there's one in particular um, called substitutionary atonement, which seems to have found the most biblical traction. It seems to be the most robust and encompassing, and it even encompasses some of the other lesser or weaker uh, atonement theories. The Reformers, in particular, in their conflict with the Roman Catholic Church, they really excelled at distinguishing and clarifying true biblical Christian doctrine from centuries of tradition and heretical teachings that muddied the waters of Orthodoxy. Now, substitutionary atonement or penal substitutionary atonement is a kind of a mouthful of sand to say if you're in a conversation trying to describe things. So people would say PSA. Um, but people would also say there was a term that that they, they coined called the great exchange. Now the great exchange is just, it's the fact of the grace of God, wherein our sins have been put on Jesus and his righteousness has been given to us freely. John Calvin explains it like this. We can confidently assure ourselves that eternal life of which he himself is the heir is ours and that the kingdom of heaven into which he has entered can no more be taken from us than from him. On the other hand, that we cannot be condemned for our sins from the guilt of which he absolves us, seeing he has been pleased that these should be imputed to himself as if they were his own. This is the wondrous exchange made by his boundless goodness. Having become with us the Son of Man, he has made us with himself sons of God. By his own descent to the earth, he has prepared our ascent to heaven, Having received our mortality, he has bestowed on us his immortality. Having undertaken our weakness, he has made us strong in his strength. Having submitted to our poverty, he has transferred to us his riches. Having taken upon himself the burden of unrighteousness with which we were oppressed, he has clothed us with his righteousness. And Martin Luther says it this way, That is the mystery mystery which is rich in divine grace to sinners wherein, by a wonderful exchange, our sins are no longer ours, but Christ's, and the righteousness of Christ, not Christ's, but ours. He has emptied himself of his righteousness, that he might clothe us with it and fill us with it. He has taken our evils upon himself, that he might deliver us from them. In the same manner as he grieved and suffered in our sins and was confounded, in the same manner we rejoice and glory in his righteousness." Now all these descriptions of this great exchange were simply extrapolations and commentaries on what the Apostle Paul had already written in the pages of Scripture. We have in Galatians 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5 we have, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And there's many, many for us statements that Paul makes. We have Romans 5, 8. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 8, 32. He he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Ephesians 5, 2. Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. Titus 2, 14 waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, to redeem us. But why would Jesus associate himself with a serpent? Now, I think this verse, as well as this aspect of Jesus' work on the cross, has been overlooked for a couple of reasons. One, I would, I would classify this verse, the saying of Jesus, as a hard saying. Like when Jesus says, you must be perfect, or whoever doesn't hate his father and his mother. Um, or like um, J- Jeremiah said last week, like, if you do not follow me, you cannot be my disciples. So I think that one, it, that's difficult. We don't want to think of Jesus in, in a negative light. It's difficult to picture Jesus, the Son of God, the Lamb of God, the Lion of Judah, as anything that would bring up a connection with the dragon, the ancient serpent, the devil and Satan. I also think also that the cro- close proximity of this to baseball fans favorite verse John 3:16, where many believe the gospel shines most brightly, also makes it difficult. I think we kind of reread verse 14 and we kind of just, it just kind of brushes past us, and we go on to verse 16, which we all know, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. So for that reason, because of its close proximity to, to John 3.16, I also think that neglecting this is dangerous in and of itself. Now, if you've ever read anything by or about Martin Luther you know that he was not one to shy away from controversy. In his writings, specifically referencing this verse in John, Luther proclaims that Christ is our serpent of salvation. Christ nailed to the cross is our bronze serpent, for faith in him frees us from the threats and terrors of the law, sin, death, wrath, and the judgment of God. And more boldly and perhaps more controversially, he writes elsewhere that Christ is the highest, the greatest, and the only sinner. Because not only do my sins and your sins, but the sins of the entire world, past, present, and future, attack him, try to damn him, and do in fact damn him. But like the mystery of the incarnation, that is Christ is 100% man, and he is 100% God, There is also an eternal and invincible righteousness in Jesus, the highest, the greatest, and the only righteousness. And he also says elsewhere that all the prophets saw this, that Christ was to become the greatest thief, murderer, adulterer, robber, desecrator, blasphemer, and more, that there has ever been anywhere in the world. He is a sinner who has and bears the sins of Paul, the former blasphemer, persecutor and assaulter, of Peter, who denied Christ, of David, who is an adulterer and a murderer. In short, he has and bears all the sins of all men in his body. Not in the sense that he has committed them, but in the sense that he took these sins, committed by us upon his own body, in order to make satisfaction for them with his own blood. Now that's a hard thing to accept. Even to say Christ, the greatest sinner, that's it's shocking. It, it just it shocks your system. So one might ask, so how can, you, how can one who is born of God insult the Son of God with such absurdity to call him a sinner and a curse? Well, I think there's three answers to that. One, because Scripture calls him that. Again, in Galatians 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And in 2 Corinthians 2, 5 again, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Secondly, we can do this because Jesus himself in our text associates himself with as much. And we've seen that the biblical imagery with serpents is not a good one. And thirdly, Martin Luther, he he answers this question in, in writing to his skeptics about this. And he says this, if you want to deny that he is a sinner and a curse, then deny also that he suffered, was crucified, and died. For it is no less absurd to say, as our creed confesses and prays, that the Son of God was crucified and underwent the torments of sin and death, then it is to say that he is a sinner or a curse. But if it is not absurd to confess and believe that Christ was crucified among thieves, then it is not absurd to say as well that he was a curse and a sinner of sinners. Surely these words of Paul are not without purpose. Christ became a curse for us, and for our sake made Christ to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And really, how can it be any other way? If... If we, don't, if we can't say that Jesus fully took on our sins and that He only took them superficially, as in like a coat or something, and they didn't embody Him, then if in the great exchange, then we only superficially have His righteousness, have his righteousness as like a cloak, and it doesn't embody us, it doesn't define us. The, his righteousness would not be truly our own if our sin is not truly His. It would be a show, it would be a spectacle, and it would be a righteousness that's in name only, and not in actual fact, in actual possession. And consequently, if Christ didn't fully take away all of our sins, then we are left with reason for God's judgment upon us, on all of us, and we cannot deal with it, and we cannot take it away, we cannot put it off. And we are left with an unpayable debt and unforgiving sins. And as a result, we are left with this burden to try and work our way out of this, to try and work our way, this debt, off. So what what are we supposed to do with that? Well, I don't think that we will ever be amazed by grace until we first come to terms with just how depraved we actually are. That's why the reformers talked so much about God's two words, law and gospel. First, God's law comes to kill. The letter kills, but the Spirit brings life. Paul says in his systematic theology of Romans that the first word, the law, came to increase the trespass, and that as sin increased, the second word, grace, abounded all the more. He also says in his letter to the Galatians that the Scripture... Or the law, the first word, imprisoned everything under sin, so that the, by the, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ, the second word, might be given to those who believe. Now, there's no way that you can understand the grace of God in any real or deep, meaningful way, apart from failure. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean behavioral failure. One of the purposes of God's law, one of the purposes of the demands that we find in the Bible, is to kind of cut us off at the knees, to help us to see that even if we're not acting on these things, it's all here, it's all in our heart. Which is why Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, things like, you've heard it said of old, that if you don't murder anybody, you're, you're, you're doing fine. But I tell you that if you harbor bitterness toward anybody, before God, you're just as guilty. I mean, we don't think about murder and bitterness or hatred in the same way just as we don't think about adultery and lust in the same way. It doesn't mean that lust and adultery and murder and anger have the same horizontal consequences, the consequences that we see in our relationships with others, because obviously they don't. But before God, both of those things fall woefully short of the perfection that God requires. And so we can't understand how great of a Savior Jesus is until we first come to terms with how how great of sinners we are. And we will never know Christ to be a great Savior until we know ourselves to be great sinners. And you don't have to be unfaithful to your spouse or murder somebody or do something heinous in order to come to terms with the fact that you're a great sinner. You don't have to go out and commit great sins to be a great sinner. You already are a great sinner. Congratulations. So am I. The problem, perhaps, is that you haven't been exposed as one, either to yourself or others. I mean, if you have trouble with that, with even calling yourself a great sinner, it's very hard to confess and accept that you need a great Savior. In Luke 7, didn't Jesus, in talking about the prostitute who washed his feet with her hair and her tears, didn't he say to Simon the Pharisee, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. All you have to do is believe God's diagnosis of you. That's what confession is. Confession, you're saying the same thing as God says. In the, which the, what God's diagnosis of you, that he delivers to you in the Bible, is typically far worse than we tend to, to believe or think it is. I mean, most people, if you would ask them, even people in the church, they tend to think that people are generally good, they're good-hearted, good-nature, that if you would only give people a chance, they'd prove to be good. Our problem, however, that is our definition of good is not generally a biblically-informed definition. In Mark 10, and again in Luke 18, Jesus is called good teacher by the rich young ruler, and he responds by saying, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So generally, we tend to say that people are good, but the diagnosis that we find in the Bible is much different. We read in Jeremiah 17.9 that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. We read in Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 and Romans 3 that there is no one righteous, no, not one. There is no one who does good. And those are just some of the diagnostic lines we get in the Bible. And if we really believe that stuff, then oftentimes, believing that you're far worse than you are protects you from, being, from going out and doing some really stupid stuff. And so here in our verse, in the lifting up of the Son of Man, just as Moses lifted up the serpent, is our highest comfort. To clothe and wrap Christ in this way, in my sins, in your sins, and the sins of the entire world, And in this way, to behold him bearing all of our sins. I believe that one of the key aspects that we miss, and that hinders our growth in grace and in the knowledge of Jesus, is that we too often don't see our sins nailed to the cross. We too often don't see our curse nailed to the cross. We see the dearest and the best, the wondrous beauty of Christ. And we feel sadness and shame and guilt. But I think in this text Jesus is showing us that we should be seeing Jesus our sin and Jesus our curse. Jesus our wretchedness. And in faith lose all of the guilt and the shame and be healed and not feel it anymore. Not, not feel it more. Not feel our guilt and our shame more. I often think about how Paul could say the Apostle Paul could say at the end of his life that he is the worst sinner he knows. I mean, clearly, if you've, if you've read the Bible, like there's no way that you can come out with that conclusion that Paul is the worst guy, that he's the worst sinner, that he's the chief of sinners. I don't think any of us would associate Paul with being that. But I think that as Paul gazed and meditated on Christ, the greatest sinner, upon the cross, he more and more saw his own sin, his own deserved curse, taken up into Jesus' own body and crucified in his place. And I believe that as Paul did this, he was empowered and inspired by the Holy Spirit to write things like Colossians 3.3, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So, My dear family and my dear friends, when you are dead in Christ and no longer live for yourself, that is when you are truly alive. When we get greater and greater glimpses of your sins, not in part, but in whole, nailed to the cross and you bear it no more, when you experience in greater and greater confidence the reality that Christ's righteousness is truly yours, that the exchange is full and it's complete and it's done, that your sins are his and that his righteousness is actually yours, That Christ's approval, his love, his security, his strength, and his resurrection power are truly yours. Love for God through Christ will explode. And your love for God will manifest in love for your neighbor, in service, in sacrifice. And that then and only then will people know that you are his disciples by your love for one another if you don't realize and come to the full acceptance that your sins are his and his righteousness is yours, like I said before, you will continually feel this burden on your back that you have to try and work off your own sin, that you have to try and build up your own righteousness to be accepted and loved by God. And your your Christian walk then becomes a ladder that you have to keep trying to climb up or a treadmill that you keep running and running and running on, and you get nowhere, because that stuff doesn't help. Your security and your situation and your position in God is solely based on Christ and His performance, not you and not your performance for Him. So I think that as we lift up Christ, while it's good to see the holiness and the righteousness, and the goodness of God. I think that's only part of it. Like When they talked about the incarnation of Christ and the, the different uh, aspects of it, it became heretical to lean to one side, to say, well, Jesus was 100% God, and that's it. Or it became heretical to say, Jesus is 100% man, and that's it. I think in the same way for us to say that Jesus is 100% good and holy and righteous is not quite the full picture because Jesus also says that he is the greatest sinner, taking all of our sins, all of your sins, all of my sins, all the sins of the world upon himself, truly taking them, truly owning them. Otherwise, it would be an injustice if he just carried them and they weren't actually his and yet he was crucified for it. And his righteousness truly becomes ours. It indwells us. It defines us. It holds us, it upholds us, it drives us. So as we look upon Jesus, let us also see our sins and our curse that are fully and truly deserved. Let us see them died and buried in him. That when we are resurrected and given new life by the Spirit in Christ, that we may truly live for him. Amen.